News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's get an update on what is happening in the United States today. In the last 24 hours, we are seeing more legal challenges being filed by the team behind Donald Trump. But let's find out how that's going now. Reggie Giacchini joins us, our Global News Washington correspondent. Morning, Reggie. Good morning. Are they making any progress? Like other than filing lawsuits and saying they have all this evidence, are they actually proving anything? They're not. There has been little to no evidence that's been provided to date. In Georgia, they did win uh, in a push for a recount, although it would have happened anyways under Georgia state law. So this is being considered a win for the Trump campaign. But outside of that, there has been no evidence that's come forward. It's simply been allegations and accusations. And today we're finding out the only uh, thing that we've actually seen for a charge uh, of election fraud was against a Republican who was trying to vote using his dead mother's identity. What? <laughs> you can't make that stuff up. And this is, I mean, this is something that's been pushed by Republicans, that dead people en masse are voting in the United States elections. Uh, and, you know, it does happen. Sometimes people die in the middle of an election year. They may have already cast a ballot, but it does not happen frequently. And the Department of Homeland Security has measures in place to make sure it doesn't happen. And the only one we've heard of so far is Republican. Okay, so in the meantime, though, they're not slowing down in, in what they're doing. Are they tackling this in every state where there's a close margin? The states where Donald Trump is not winning is where these lawsuits are, but they're not going anywhere. They're failing in Nevada. They're failing uh, in Arizona. They're failing in Michigan. They're struggling in uh, Pennsylvania and in Georgia. It simply is just being lobbed state after state, and judges are coming back saying, you have no evidence, and the evidence you're giving us amounts to hearsay, uh, but it's not deterring them. They're simply going forward, kind of doing the speaking for President Trump, who remains silent. So what are the next steps here? Like, this seems to be dragging on quite extensively. What is uh, Joe Biden doing at this point? Well, look, Joe Biden's basically running a shadow cabinet right now, meeting with his own uh, coronavirus task force, implementing, uh, you know, a chief of staff for the White House. He's moving forward uh, towards inauguration day, despite the fact that there are roadblocks in his way and that the White House and the administration has not formally uh, accepted the results of the election. That kind of locks up funding and resources that Joe Biden needs. Uh, It's problematic. It potentially creates a national security risk. But Joe Biden says, look, I've been in this game for a long time. I know my way around the White House. We'll get this done right but in the meantime is he is he getting calls from world leaders or is the rest of the world treating him as the president-elect there are more world leaders that have called joe biden to say congratulations than there are members of the republican party in the united states which again shows that there's a deep uh, political divide in this country that he is going to have to work uh, hard to try and mend back together the fact that he is getting calls from united states allies and from you know mildly adversarial nations uh is 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 kind of uh, questionable to to you know have the president right yeah. now ignoring what's going on. Isn't, didn't the Turkish president yesterday congratulate Joe Biden? And that's somebody who has been known to have a good relationship with Donald Trump. At same with uh, with the UK uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, uh, kind of you know second in line when it comes to kind of a thought process w- with Donald Trump. He called Donald Trump former President Ooh. Trump. So there are world leaders out there that are accepting that things are moving forward. It's just not happening in this country. In the meantime, have we seen or heard anything from Donald Trump? 
Well, I mean, he's all over Twitter this morning pushing baseless conspiracies about fraud and complaining about the North Carolina count, which was given nine days and it wraps up today. Uh, he's ignoring fully the COVID crisis in this country, especially with roughly 150,000 cases yesterday. He's making no effort to try and uh, move the country forward at all. And there are concerns that the longer he holds Joe Biden back from being able to get information, uh, especially on the vaccine project, that really could eat into the time that Joe Biden needs to roll the vaccine out. So there are more potential consequences for the president's silence. Right, because there has there's some things that are usually shared, right, with an incoming president. And so the Trump team is not sharing any of that information. They're sharing nothing right now. At this point, the incoming president would also be given access to the presidential daily briefings. That's not happening. And just minutes ago on Fox News, Kayleigh McEnany said that the the question of whether Biden is needs to get this access should be asked to the White House. She is the White House press secretary yeah. and still won't answer this. So it's just it's it's circular arguments that are coming out of a White House trying to kind of hold on to the last remaining weeks of the administration. I can't even believe it's been more than a week since the election. It feels like much longer than that. But and, <laughs> yep. and there are 10 weeks to go until inauguration. So we've oh, got boy. 10 more weeks of, of waiting. Oh, boy. Thank you so much, Reggie. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. We tend to forget sometimes we have not one but two public health emergencies going on in this province. Yes, COVID-19, but also the one that we've been dealing with for years now, and that is the opioid overdose crisis. And the combination of those things have led to uh, clearly other issues that have spilled over everywhere. We've talked about overdose deaths and tent cities too, which are a big concern for so many communities right across the province. And even though there's been quite an effort made to kind of try to house people uh, who are then moved out of some of those parks. But in particular, we're talking about Vancouver and Victoria here. So Victoria Mayor Lisa Helps has co-written a piece in the Vancouver Sun calling on the province to move more quickly. So we wanted to talk about that, the kind of action that some mayors think need to be taken. So joining us now is Lisa Helps, the mayor of Victoria. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Good morning. What made you write this? Like, what did you want to draw attention to? Well, first of all, while the the piece was written by myself and Kelowna Mayor uh, Colin Bazran, it was written on behalf of 13 mayors across urban British Columbia who formed the BC Urban Mayors Caucus. So from Prince George to Kamloops to Kelowna to Victoria to Nanaimo to downtown Vancouver to Coquitlam, there are 13 of us who are meeting every Friday at 7 a.m. and have been since, uh, you know, for some months now. And this issue really has risen to the top in all of our communities, not just Victoria and Vancouver, but right across the province. And we we raised it during the election campaign. And now that uh, we've got a new government, uh, we wanted to raise it once again in our op-ed and, and let them know that we're here to work collectively with them to solve this really, really troubling issue. And so what is there something that you feel isn't being done, something that you feel the government could do more of? Yes. So the government's doing a really good job that the NDP government has done a really good job investing in housing. There's been housing built, affordable housing, supportive housing in in many of our communities uh, over their their past term of office. Uh, What's missing, quite frankly, in in some cases is that the supports aren't keeping up with or don't match the housing. So in all of our streets, in all of our downtowns, in all of our parks, there are people who are outside, uh, living outside, who have complex um, medical needs, who need complex complex care and putting them in affordable or supportive housing simply doesn't work. So there, there needs to be a range of treatment solutions. And the province is aware of this. And I, I think we're going to see some action when they uh, when they take office. Okay, what kind of action do you think? 
Well, there needs to be more treatment and recovery spaces that are available on demand in communities across British Columbia. And, you know, I'll speak for urban British Columbia because that's what our caucus is doing, but presumably in rural areas as well. So, you know, right now, for example, if there's a youth on Vancouver Island who needs treatment, uh, there's nowhere. There's, you know, if an 18-year-old or a 22-year-old walked in and said, I'm ready to deal with my addiction, there's literally nowhere for them to go. And, and the same is true for adults. And so it, it seems like a simple uh, fix, but, but that is what is needed. Treatment and recovery facilities in, in urban areas across British Columbia. And why, They're available on demand. And why is it, Mayor Helps, it seems like we've been talking about that for so long. It seems like such an obvious thing. And yet here we are still talking about that. Because it's really expensive. It, it is very expensive. And, you know, I, I had a fantastic conversation with, with Carol James when she was both my MLA and finance minister, and she made a really good point. You know, uh, it, it is said, and this is true, that the, the cost savings of getting somebody who has complex mental health and addictions challenges, who's currently homeless, moving them, uh, so having that person, you know, person A, we'll call them with those complex challenges, on the street costs, uh, you know, all of us taxpayers, $55,000 per year, moving that exact same person into housing with supports uh, for their mental health and addictions costs us all about $17,000 per year. So it's, so it's way cheaper. But Carol's point, and, and I agree, and I think this is why action is slow, is that probably for about 10 years, you're paying both of those costs because you can't move everybody in with all of their needs all at once. It, it takes time. And, and so I think that the resistance is that it, it's very, very costly. You basically have to have the, the two systems going at once. And so it, that's why. But I think, right. you know, what, what, what we're stressing is that the need has reached a critical breaking point. Uh, there are people living in parks. There are people with very complex medical needs having breakdowns and medical crises in our, in our downtowns. It's not good for business. And, and so we're, we're really at a tipping point or a breaking point, and we hope to see action quickly that I've, you know, in some of the ways that I've outlined. Have you been able to measure sort of what is the cost of not doing anything? Like, yes, it's expensive to do this, but by not doing this, what's, what is, is long-term cost greater? The long-term cost is absolutely greater because we're going to have a whole generation of, of people, particularly of opioid users, some of whom have been um, re- revived from overdoses time and again, uh, who are now uh, experiencing severe brain damage. That is a long-term impact on our healthcare system. It's a long-term impact on our social care system. So th- that is that is one of the costs, and, and we're starting to see that. I think that's one of the unintended consequences of the opioid uh, crisis is that when people are revived from an overdose, some have been, you know, without oxygen to their brains for some time, and, and they're experiencing brain damage. And again, that's showing up on our streets and in our parks right now across urban British Columbia. Okay, so then you, you're trying to get the government's attention on this. What kind of response have you gotten? A very favorable response. Um, so you know, they weren't the government yet, but we formed the BC Urban Mayors Caucus basically in response to urban issues that we've been experiencing because of COVID. Uh, we released, uh, as part of the election campaign, a blueprint for uh, BC's urban future, which is available if you want to read it or anyone does. Uh, and, and we got some very good responses from uh, from all parties, really. We asked all parties to outline uh, what they were planning to do about this issue. Uh, and then we asked for meetings with the party leaders. Uh, we were lucky enough to meet with Sonia Firstino and also with Premier-elect John Horgan. We met with him a couple of days before the election, and he committed to working with us on, on all of the issues in our blueprint. So we're looking forward to that. Okay, so you're hopeful, it sounds like. 
Very hopeful. I think everyone realizes it's a crisis. I think uh, doc- Dr. Henry has done a good job, uh, you know, during the um, her, her managing and her briefings uh, on the coronavirus of reminding us that the opioid uh, epidemic has been here for four years and needs attention. So uh, I don't think it's something we can ignore if we want to have the kind of economic recovery that we all do, because if we have people uh, in our parks, on our streets with complex medical needs who are left outside, uh, there isn't going to be recovery for anyone. All right. Thank you very much for your time on that. You're welcome. Have a good day. Victoria Mayor Lisa Helps uh, has co-written, along with other urban mayors around BC, a piece in the Vancouver Sun calling on the BC government to move more quickly, months, not years, in terms of finding help for people who need it. They want more focus on recovery and assistance uh, as opposed to waiting until things get so desperate like a tent city and then trying to house people at that point. Uh, So that's something I think a lot of people have been calling for, but as she pointed out, it's also expensive. And that is one of the concerns. Is it time now to just spend that money and do it? If we can see the visible kind of end result of that. Find a way in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Time now for us to check in with our Nikki Reitmeyer this morning. And we're going to talk about these kind of graphics that uh, Fraser Health has put out. And boy, are they ever illustrative of the challenge that we are facing right now. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, it's interesting to see how contact tracing works. And Fraser Health put out these great graphs that illustrates exactly, you know, when one person with COVID-19 comes into contact with a group of other people, what's going to happen down the line. And these are all based on real events as well. These are all based on real cases. Exactly. And boy, the spread, it just shows you how uh, I talked about the super spreader event yesterday that happened on Long Island. And now the couple is splashed all over the front page of every newspaper. Uh, But it's similar situation here where it's like one event, one thing that you go to can have all of these unintended consequences. Yeah, exactly. And an example of that is a wedding. So they said there was one person who was positive for COVID-19 who went to a wedding. And again, this is a real event that happened. This person really went to a real wedding where there was 50 other people at this wedding. And because that one person with COVID-19 came into contact with those other wedding guests, that meant that all of those 50 people had to isolate. So right off the bat, you have big routine disruption for all of these people, a big inconvenience because now they can't go to work, they can't go to school. And out of that 50 people, 15 of them ended up testing positive for COVID-19. So from those 15 people who tested positive, you have one family business that's greatly affected because five of their employees end up testing positive. From those 15 people, there were 10 more households where someone became infected and that required 37 more people to have to self-isolate. And there was an outbreak at a long-term care home and 81 elderly people had to self-isolate in their rooms. In the end, three people were admitted to hospital and one person died. And that can all be traced back to just that one person who was positive for COVID-19 who attended a wedding. That's crazy. That's crazy. And the way they've illustrated it in these graphics, like you can just see one wedding, one wedding that you thought was harmless because, oh, yeah, we'll be careful. And I know everybody had such a huge detrimental effect. 
And I wonder with these people who are going to these events, if they know they're COVID positive, these people could be asymptomatic or maybe they just yeah. brush off their symptoms because exactly. they aren't experiencing extreme symptoms as something, oh, you know, it's, it's just a bit of a cold that I'm experiencing. I just feel a little under the weather today, Ugh. had a bit too much wine on the weekend. That must be what it is. <laughs> and it turns out that it's actually something much more severe, but they go about their daily lives and they end up spreading the virus. I mean, there's another example with a fitness class. Yeah, let's, I was going to say, let's, let's talk about that one because the wedding fine. You may think, oh, I'm, I wouldn't go to a wedding. Who would do that? But remember, these are actual cases. This is actual Fraser Health data. And talk about now, Nikki, these ones about somebody, just one COVID-19 positive person at a fitness class. Exactly. So the one person attends a group fitness class. From there, 67 people test positive at two studios, a lot of people going to different studios and so forth. 180 people were required to self-isolate so they couldn't go to work or they couldn't go to school. That led to six school exposures. 37 more people tested positive after coming into contact with that big workout group. And one of those people, or at least one of them, attended a games night with some friends. From that gathering, seven more people at the games night event tested positive. So from the original workout group, four people tested positive at a correctional facility. 80 workers were then required to self-isolate. And in the end, three people were admitted to hospital. All because one person went to a fitness class. Exactly. It, it's Interesting when you see it traced back like this and you go, wow, those are the impacts of, you know, just one person going to a fitness class, just one person going to a wedding. Yeah. Uh, Nikki, I was asking Gord this this morning as well. Have you noticed any changes in your neighborhood in the last couple of days? Like are people not out and about as much? It's tough to say because I'm not out and about as much, right. to be honest with you. I, I walk the dogs and that's kind of the extent that I've been going out recently. And yeah, the, the streets do seem a little quieter. I have a tennis court nearby and, and that's always pretty busy. So there has been people playing tennis, hmm. which is a socially distanced sport, I guess you could argue. And usually it does seem to be people who are perhaps in the same household playing it. Couples is kind of the right. example that I'm thinking of uh, that tend to be playing. But otherwise, the park that surrounds that tennis court, it has been really quiet. The streets hmm. seem quieter too. I don't know. Okay, do you, that's good. Do you find the same thing in your neighborhood? Well, I kind of noticed it, but I think this weekend will be the big test, right? Because if it's not as busy, crazy as it was last weekend, then I think hopefully people are listening. But we'll see how that goes. Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Remember, Doc, in the beginning of this pandemic, we thought, oh, things are going to be changing forever. This is going to change how we work. It's going to change how we live. People aren't going to want to go back to work. We're going to love working from home. Well, now that we're well into this thing, too, I think some people kind of miss being back at work. So maybe some of those changes aren't going to be as permanent as we thought. But still, a lot of discussion going on about that. And there's an event happening this weekend that is intended to help people think about how we can use this unique and strange period to improve where we live and how we live. Ian Gill is an author and the co-organizer of this event called the Festival of What Works, and he joins us now to talk about it. Good morning, Ian. Good morning, Zoe. I love the name of this, Festival of What Works. Where did that come from? Well, it actually came from my small brain. Uh, but uh, actually, um, really, in the sense, what we want to do is focus on things that are working at a time where 
you know, sometimes if you read the news or listen to the news, you get the impression that nothing's working, that our systems are failing. And in fact, the pandemic, in many people's view, is a, a, a sign of a sort of global systems failure. And what we're concentrating on is the fact that in all sorts of communities everywhere, the twin perils of climate change and uh, the pandemic are being met by people saying, "Okay, well, um, maybe we're not going to wait for Ottawa to come in on a white horse and rescue us or Washington, D.C., certainly. Maybe we should start thinking about um, how we fix things, uh, how we do things differently at home. And the festival basically aims to sort of um, network together and bring together people who are doing really interesting, innovative work and help them share that and uh, with their neighbours and um, actually promote what they're doing. So that's the, the genesis right. of it. Well, if there's one thing that I've taken away from all of this is that humans are incredibly adaptable. Like we find it, if we find ourselves in a strange situation, we do manage to kind of pivot and make it work. Absolutely. And, you know, we concentrate, our group is called Salmon Nation, and we concentrate on what we call edge communities, because, you know, a lot of innovation actually doesn't happen in the centres of power or the centres of government and everything else, mostly because they're trying to protect their power or protect their money. So where we see a huge amount of adaptation and innovation is in uh, not just rural communities, but what we call edge communities. Um, and these are places where, you know, if climate change is arriving on your doorstep, you adapt. You you come up with human systems and you collaborate and you share and you figure out how to do things and make them work for you. A lot of it has to do, frankly, with unmaking bad policies and bad practices that we've suffered from for generations. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with just people saying, you know, Actually, we can figure out a better way. Uh, and what's really heartening is not just that people are as adaptable as you say, mm-hmm. um, but they're really willing to share and they're really willing to basically say, look, we're in this together. This pandemic has really brought that sort of more empathetic tone out in people. We're in this together. Let's not hog our little idea. Let's share it. And that's really exciting. And that's kind of the ethos behind right. this, uh, this festival, which goes for about a week. Actually, We have about 50 events wow. spread over a week. Okay, what kind of events, though? Like, what would somebody learn from taking part in this festival? Oh, a lot of things are sort of panels of presentations and everything else. There's a fascinating story emerging in northern BC about the regeneration of forest ecosystems through new um, seed-gathering practices, for instance, which is something that could happen anywhere. There's all sorts of things happening in community-supported fisheries and forestry uh, energy production. Um, but So there's a lot of it focused on natural resources and that sort of thing. But also, um, you know, how do you get capital? How do you raise money for these innovative ideas? That's a theme of the show, but of the festival. But also, we have some entertainment. We have some really fun things going on. So it's not all just you know, serious stuff about you know, repairing the planet. It's also about having some fun and celebrating art and celebrating music. Right. Uh, we have a great conversation with Wade Davis and Eden Robinson, two very famous authors, yes. uh, talking to each other. Uh, so that's going to be a hit. So there's a, a sprinkling of things for everybody really i would say Ian, though just listening to your description of it it sounds like this is a very glass half full a very optimistic festival uh it is um and we're not shying away from the fact that problems exist in fact the fact that these problems exist is the root of the festival and indeed the work of salmon nation and what we're trying to basically do in salmon nation is say Let's think about this bioregion from Northern California to Southeast Alaska, where the big fish are and the big trees are. This is this Northwest region of the North America is the most amazing place on the planet. 
And so um, let's break down the borders. Let's actually work across borders and across jurisdictions and across silos um, and absolutely mm-hmm. sort of focus on what works and, and what's good about where we live. Um, and frankly, I think we've all decided in one way or another that we're going to have to live very differently on the planet than what got us to where we are now. And I think that Salmon Nation could be an example of the world about how to do that. So very quickly, Ian, where can people find out more? Uh, SalmonNation.net. Uh, just uh, go in there and all we're asking, it's a free festival. All, all the events are free. All we're asking people to do is sign up so we know who they are. Okay. And they can sign up for one event or 50 Sounds like a plan. Ian, thank you. Thank you very much, Ian. It's Ian Gill, the author and co-organizer of the Festival of What Works. You go to SalmonNation.net and you can sign up, as Ian said, for one or all 50 events, and it's absolutely free. This is Mornings with Simi. So we've been talking a lot about the restrictions that have come out as a result of last weekend's public health orders, right? Uh, A big part of that, though, is enhanced safety inspections at various workplaces. Because as we heard from some restaurant owners as well, some fitness places, we talked to the owner of a gym the other day, uh, they're following the rules, they feel like, but they know of other places and establishments that are not. And that's causing problems. So we thought, let's find out what the process is for those inspections. Joining us now is Al Johnson, Head of Prevention Services at WorkSafe BC. Al, thanks for being back with us. My pleasure. Good morning, Simi. Now, are you going to be stepping up inspections in light of last weekend's new provincial health order? We will be. We're doing what we call enhanced inspections, and so those began this week, actually. Uh, you know, we really want to help employers and workers prevent exposure to the virus. And for the most part, uh, since this began, since we we reopened things and kept things open way back so long ago, it feels like, you know, employers and workers have been doing a good job regarding COVID safety plans, but now is not the time to relax. And so our enhanced inspections are going to dive a little deeper deeper and we're really out there to ensure that they're staying vigilant and staying true to those plans they created. Now what is the process for doing the inspections? Do you, is it complaint based? How do you decide what you're going to inspect? It's actually a little bit of both. We have a, uh, one, a, uh, a toll-free number throughout the province uh, that is 24-7. Anybody can call it, uh, employers, workers, the public. And uh, for the most part, we get a lot of questions, and we're able to answer those questions directly. So it's very useful as an information line, but it also serves as a complaint line. And so where we see uh, or where we get a complaint that something isn't, uh, isn't right in a workplace, then we will follow up on those complaints as well. And, and we actually follow up on all of those complaints and deal with those issues that come to our attention. Um, and that is what we call our response work. But we also have planned work. And so our, our officers, and we have a, approximately 325 officers, prevention inspectors throughout the province, they're assigned geographically. And uh, they will go out uh, in a planned way, uh, focused on where we believe with information from public health and the health authorities that we need to go as a priority. And we will do those planned inspections and show up at workplaces is unannounced, knock on the door and uh, talk to the employer and the workers about their COVID safety plan. So do you need more help essentially then to do more inspections? 
We could always use more help, absolutely. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the right number of inspections is. We, we, we don't have a target per se. We just uh, keep doing as many as we can. And, and uh, we've done a number since, if you look at our website, we have a lot of uh, statistics on there, a lot of uh, information on what we have been able to do. And we literally, we've done 18,000 or so inspections since March. That continues. We've, we've handled tens of thousands of phone calls. The materials that we have on our website that we've also just updated right now. So it's important that employers and workers look at the new updated information. Uh, that information, uh, we've written directives and, and guidance materials and resources that they can download and checklists. Uh, and so they, they should be able to see in that information exactly what we're going to be asking them if indeed we show up at their door. So which workplaces are you emphasizing here, Mal? Because we know that, uh, you know, gyms are a concern, right? Fitness areas are a concern. Uh, Will you be doing more inspections on some of those kinds of places? Those those particular facilities, they are under a, a very specific public health order. And so, again, public health and the medical health officers, uh, there's a process in place for them to engage with each other and uh, work through some of their issues. Uh, our prevention officers right now, working with the health authorities, we're focused on some larger, higher-risk workplaces as we see them. And those are generally uh, workplaces where it's difficult to maintain physical distancing, where there's actually large number of of workers uh, interacting with each other in a space or actually interacting with the public where there's that close contact opportunity. And so we're looking uh, as a priority, at least, food processing um, and and areas like warehousing, uh, manufacturing facilities are a high priority. But we're also going into many other locations. So we will be going into restaurants and and, uh, fitness facilities and and gyms and all sorts of other uh, facilities as well as we can, and as, of course, as we're also called and do our response work. So given where we're at with these numbers and the level of concern we have, if you go into one of these places and you look around and you go, well, clearly this is not what's supposed to be happening, do you shut that place down or do you just do you give them a fine? We do a little bit. We, we have all the options there to do all of those things. Again, we want employers to succeed. We want them to do things right. We want them to protect their workers. Uh, so really, we'll work with them to do that. And that's what we're trying to do. But where somebody digs in their heels and they're resisting our direction and our advice and, and what our officers are, are conversing with them and, and directing them to do, then we can take more of an enforcement stance. And we've done that in some cases. That typically hasn't been shutting down the entire operation, uh, but part, parts of the operation could be shut down for a short period of time until they, they rectify their plans or improve their plans or indeed create a plan. Right. We also have the ability to apply what we call uh, citations, which is kind of like a ticket, uh, $500 or $1,000, but we can take that further. If there's continued non-compliance, we have a penalty process that uh, uh, applies to all health and safety violations in the workplace, not just COVID, and that penalty process can uh, be substantial and it's based on an employer's payroll uh, and is calculated out on an employer's payroll and can go up to about $650,000 as a maximum. Okay, so what you do need though, Al, is that if people think there is a business that isn't complying, they need to let WorkSafe know. 
Absolutely. That's what we're here for. If they could let us know. And, uh, you know, my first order of, of uh, thought would be if you're a worker in a workplace and you don't feel things are right, talk to your employer, talk to your supervisor, talk to your employer, try to work it out yourselves. The workers are a part of the team in, in workplaces. We're really trying to encourage employers to engage and use their workforce, uh, use their employees, use their joint health and safety committee to help them uh, stay COVID safe. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it just doesn't feel right, and your employer isn't, uh, you know, heeding your your thoughts or uh, or or following up on what you've asked them to do, or or answering questions correctly, or making improvements, then you can always absolutely call us. Certainly. Okay, and where where do they reach you? Uh, in the Lower Mainland, 604-276-3100, and we have a toll-free line, one 621 safe S-A-F-E. All right, Al, thank you. Thank you, Simi. Have a good day. Be, you stay too. safe. Yeah, you too. That's Al Johnson, Head of Prevention Services at WorkSafe BC, talking about stepping up in workplace inspections in light of the increased concern and the provincial health orders about COVID-19. We talked to the gym owner a couple of days ago where he said, you know, he's been following the rules. He knows of most gyms that are, but they also know of a couple that are not. Well, it's going to sound like going to be incumbent upon them to give those, give workplace a call, WorkSafe a call and say, I think you better go check this place out there if we really want to kind of crack down on this kind of stuff. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, there are a lot of parents out there and just gamers in general who all find themselves in the same predicament this morning. And I'm with you on this one. I'm in this predicament as well. It's trying to get your hands on a Sony PlayStation 5. One, it is not cheap. And two, Good luck even finding one. We're talking this morning about that with Mike Agarbo, host of Get Connected. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Why is this thing so hugely popular? Well, it's the first update to the uh, the video game consoles, I think, in almost six years. I think the PlayStation 4 came out uh, in 2014. So it's been a long time. So uh, video gamers are really excited about these next-generation consoles. They're dramatically faster, they load the games uh, much quicker, uh, and uh, they'll be capable of uh, 4K uh, video gaming as well, with uh, 8K video gaming coming uh, in the future. So that refers to the resolution of the games, and uh, you know, the higher the resolution, the, the more lifelike they, they become. Right. Do you think the pandemic has something to do with it as well? Like, are people just looking for more entertainment at home? I think so. That's a part of it. Uh, but there's no question when these, uh, these new consoles launch, uh, there is a huge... Uh, excitement around them and a huge uh, pent up demand uh, as well. Uh, but like you were saying, they are hard to come by uh, right now. And uh, at this time, if you haven't pre-ordered one uh, to uh, you know a store, you have to buy them online. Uh, they're taking in uh, into consideration COVID precautions. Right. So they're only Sony's only making these available for online purchase. There's no lining up or anything like that to get one. Uh, but this morning, a whole bunch of them were supposed to be made available. But honestly, like good luck even getting them. And that's despite the fact, Mike, that these are not cheap. No, I think the PlayStation Five, uh, the one with the uh, the built-in 4K ultra high definition Blu-ray comes in around $629, so it is up there. They do have a digital version only that doesn't have the uh, the drive uh, coming in, I think, around $499. And the Xbox uh, uh, competitor is kind of in similar price uh, price ranges. So, yeah, you're going to be shelling out a few bucks. And, and keep in mind, uh, you know, those typically only come with one controller. So if you want to have friends, uh, you know, when that day comes when you can't have friends over, 
uh, you're going to be shelling out, uh, you know, around 80 to $90 uh, for extra uh, controllers. Oh, boys. It, this is also, you know, Mike, with the demand, right? The more in demand it is, the more expensive it gets. And that kind of hypes everything up too, right? It, it sure does. You know, if you look on Craigslist, uh, you know, there are a few available there, but you're going to be paying a premium of a few extra hundred dollars uh, for those people that really, really want one uh, right now. But uh, from, you know, what I've heard from Sony uh, and even the Xbox folks, uh, they're working hard to get as many of these units, uh, you know, out uh, into the wild before the holiday season. So you're just going to have to keep trying and to see if uh, you can get uh, an online order. Now we have a question from our ever practical Janet Brown, one of our reporter who wants to know, is there any chance this price might go down next spring or summer, perhaps if she could perhaps hold her son off until then to get one. Well, I think it's, uh, we, we see with technology, the prices always do come down. Uh, you know, typically uh, for these, these consoles, uh, you know, a lot of times uh, like the Sony's and Xboxes, uh, they're taking a loss when they first come out just by the sheer amount of tech that they put in here. So uh, the idea for them is that they want to get as many of these out there because they make money on all the games that are being sold. It's kind of like the Razor Blade uh, and, and Razor, uh, you know, thing. So uh, the more people that buy it, the more games uh, will be sold. And it's all about subscriptions now as well. Uh, they want you to buy into uh, their subscription services. Uh, Xbox has got their uh, Xbox Game Pass, PlayStation, uh, the PlayStation Plus uh, as well. And these are typically in the, the 10 to $20 range a month, but uh, allows you to play, you know, you know, dozens, if not, you know, over a hundred uh, games, kind of like a Netflix for gaming. Right. So uh, after you've already spent the six or $700 and made yourself crazy <laughs> trying to buy the console, they want you to pay more every month. Is that it? Yeah. But you know, I, if, if you look at the value, I mean, if you have to buy these games outright, you know, especially the, uh, the first run title, it's getting up there, right? They're, you know, 60, 70, $80 uh, per game. So, uh, if you can get into a subscription that you know gives you dozens of games, you know right off the bat, that is that is great value for you know the ten to fifteen dollars. So um, you know I, I I don't think it's a huge price to pay for that type of uh, entertainment. But you know these these things are uh, very very popular, and you know not only are they video game consoles, they're also like home entertainment units uh, as well. You can uh, yeah. stream uh, things like Netflix and, and what have you in your living room. Okay, so there's these new ones then. Have you tried them, and how how different are they from the older versions? Uh, yeah, I've uh, had a chance to try them out uh, a while back, like prototypes. Um, the The resolution on the games is uh, amazing. Uh, you know, of course, when they first come out, they don't have a lot of titles, you know, anywhere from 20 to, to 40 titles, but obviously that will uh, grow. But the resolution is amazing, the, the 4K, uh, the frame rates. Uh, you know, I think they have been able to get up to 120 frames per second, so it just smooths out the action. And the nice thing, too, is that it actually ups the resolution of the older games as well. So if you've got PlayStation 4 games, uh, it is backwards compatible, so you'll be able to play that on the new console, and it makes them look even better, uh, too. So it's it's exciting. And and just the load times and how quickly uh, the games load up, it's just dramatically faster uh, as well, which I think is a a great thing. So, uh, yeah, it's exciting. Like, Like I said, these things haven't been really refreshed mm-hmm. you know for over six years now so uh you know if you're into tech and gaming it's it's going to be a great christmas if so you can get one if if you can get one so in terms of the tech world then are these the must-have gifts for the holidays do you think is this going to be number one on a lot of kids lists i think so so uh you know either they better get uh, 
uh, a, a job or, uh, you know, hopefully the parents can make <laughs> a few bucks uh, as well. But, you know, if, uh, if the, the price is an issue, uh, like I said, you can always get the digital versions. I think the, uh, the PlayStation 5 digital version is uh, about $130 cheaper. It com- comes in around $4.99 Canadian. Uh, and the Xbox One, uh, I think, is around three ninety nine, if I'm right. not mistaken. Uh, uh, so they just don't come with the drive. But, you know, most most people are, are just getting the digital versions of the games anyway. That's what I thought, too. Now, Mike, okay, for the guy who has everything, which is you, what would be at the top of your holiday wish list, then? Uh, well, I mean, obviously one of these consoles, <laughs> definitely, or both of them, because I'm, uh, I'm crazy that way. Uh, yeah, I... You know, I'm really into smart home technology right now, so there's a lot of uh, smart home gear that uh, you know keeps coming uh, out. Uh, I can always use another robot vacuum <laughs> to help out. <laughs> you you have one of those houses that probably talk back to you, right? Yeah, for Pretty better or worse, I love it. Uh, I'm not very popular with the family because you know with tech, it's it's not always perfect. So yeah. uh, you know, most of the stuff now you have to use your voice and turn on now and. You know, if that doesn't work 100% of the times, uh, you know, I go down in the polls. Uh, <laughs> I'll bet you do. Mike, thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. That's Mike Agarbo, host of Get Connected, talking about the must-have um, item for parents out there right now. A lot of gamers, just people in general who love to play video games. It is the PlayStation 5. Uh, it was released in Canada this morning, but as Mike pointed out, Good luck getting one, even though the top price is something like $650. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about your eating habits during this pandemic. Remember in the beginning, we were all worried about, and still are in many cases, about restaurants and everybody closing. And there was a real movement to order out more so we could help some of these restaurants stay open and keep people employed. And that has been mitigated somewhat by the reopening of restaurants. But still, it's it's very much a push, right, to keep ordering from restaurants, takeout, groceries in some cases. I know I did that quite a bit during the beginning of the pandemic. But there's a new study on e-commerce in the food service industry that has just been released today. And it shows that Canadians are essentially shopping online more than ever. Now, this study is coming out of Dalhousie University. So, of course, that means that food professor Sylvain Charlebois was part of it. This is really his area, of course. He spoke with Global News earlier this morning. Have a listen. Last six months have been interesting, <laughs> to say the least, and so we're and we're also looking at looking at the future and see how how much this will stick. I guess uh, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of business being conducted online to buy food. A lot of people are ordering food online, much mm. more so than ever before. Over the last six months, sixty three point nine percent of Canadians have actually ordered food online. Uh, so it could be by using a food delivery app. It could be by uh, ordering uh, groceries, uh, click and collect, or having your groceries delivered at home. So lots of different channels being developed. And, and frankly, the quality of service is increasing in the HRM and elsewhere in the country. And that's why people are ordering more food online. That is Sylvain Charlebois talking about Canadians' online shopping habits when it comes to food. Our Nikki Reitmeyer is with us. And Nikki, I agree with everything he just said there because I have also done a lot more of that kind of shopping, not just ordering takeout from a restaurant, but groceries and things online from smaller places since this started. 
I was actually surprised by this survey, by the number of people who said that they had not engaged in some kind of behavior like this, shopping online, buying, you know, fast food online or food delivery really? services. Yeah, you had uh, over 60% of Canadians saying that they had engaged in this type of retail, but then the remaining number saying that they hadn't, which I thought was kind of strange because most people that you talk to have ordered delivery at some point during the pandemic, whether it's, you know, one of those food well, kits yeah. that you order online or whether it's groceries from the grocery store or whether it's skip the dishes. I've done all of the above, <laughs> more yep. so, right, where I felt like, listen, I've got my job. I'm very lucky. You know, we've got to support local restaurants. So I definitely use that as a way of, you know, ordering a lot of food. But one of my favorite things that I still do as a result of this pandemic is, and I'm going to give a shout out to a local company here. Uh, it's, and Nikki, you know them as well. It's called Flourist, like flower as an F-L-O-U-R. Ah, okay. Yeah. Started out as a local bakery. I love their freshly milled flour that I've bought from them for a while now. But they have been doing groceries, like uh, veg, essentially farmer's market online. They work with a number of local producers to have those groceries available online and they deliver, next day delivery. So I've been doing that and I still do that. Remember those great peaches that I had earlier this summer? Yes, those were fantastic peaches. Got it from them. Got it from them. So that's something that I will continue to do. I've ordered meal kits from restaurants. Another shout out. I'll give it to Cafe Latana because I've been ordering some of their meal kits and they're fantastic. How about you? Yeah, I've done all of the above as well. I haven't ordered a meal kit from a restaurant, but goodness knows I've ordered enough food for them. 31% of Canadians saying that they've bought groceries online. 28% of Canadians saying they've bought direct from a restaurant to get their food. And then 26% saying that they've used those delivery apps. And this is the category that I fall into the most. Uh -huh. Uber Eats, Skip the Dishes, DoorDash. Those ones, I, I, I've used a few uh, just a few times during the Why don't you be honest? The, the delivery drivers know your name. It's actually sad that they do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you're alone in that one, but I know for other people that they want to go in person more, like they might order, but they'll still do pickup, that kind of thing. Uh, but we're asking people this as well on Twitter. We want to know, are you going to keep doing this, ordering takeout and groceries online uh, after the pandemic is over? 15% saying it's temporary for them, but 30% saying, yeah, they will because it's more convenient. We have about 10% of people saying yes, but only takeout. So if you want to check that out, go to at CKNW uh, right on Twitter. Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. It's tough in the backcountry in the wintertime, and you know what? People need help when things go wrong. Is that going to be more of a problem this year? Could be. A lot more people are probably going to be heading outside any way they can to get away from other people, keep themselves distanced. But we want to talk about doing that, but also staying safe. What is it that you need to know? Well, Dave Crompton survived an avalanche that killed a member of their party, and he has now partnered with the Association of Canadian Mountain Guides to raise awareness about backcountry survival. And Dave joins us now. Dave, thanks for being here. Jimmy, uh, thank you very much for having me. Is this something, do you feel like you better get the message out right now because a lot of people are going to be heading outdoors where they can? Exactly. I mean, we timed it uh, for preseason. Uh, we believe with COVID there's going to be an uptick in uh, backcountry um, day tripping uh, in general and uh, with the lifts on ski hills getting backed up and people yeah. want to get out in nature, this is a great time to get the message. Can you tell us about your story, what you went through? 
yeah, we experienced, unfortunately, we experienced uh, that, that thing that you know, nobody uh, hopes they'll ever experience in an avalanche. It was, uh, it was devastating. It took 10 of us down the side of a mountain, uh, ended up with five direct burials, five of us actually self-rescued to be able to then, in turn, uh, locate, uncover, and uh, stabilize uh, the other five. Oh, that's unreal. What kind of, what were the conditions like? What was the day like? It was actually a, a, a bullet, a killer day. It was blue sky. Uh, however, a little bit too warm. February 21, we're in the Esplanade, northwest of uh, Golden, and uh, it was a bit of sun effect. So our initial target was to uh, ski a southwestern uh, facing slope, but it was already starting to get a little bit uh, sun affected. So we just kept up tracking around the mountain until we came to a, a northeaster, uh, which was uh, protected uh, from the sun. And, uh, but unfortunately, it was a run that none of us, including our guide, had ever been to. Uh, our guide knew there was a, uh, a feature, a, a convexity you know, that framed the top of this run. Turns out the run was actually an avalanche chute. And to be framed by um, a convexity means that there was no support on top. If something were to happen, the run, the whole hill would go. On top of that, there was a advisory, a spa uh, that was issued the night before. We had it flown in uh, without, so we didn't really have coverage where we were at the lodge in the backcountry. So the spa was a special advisory that uh, talked about elevated consistency. It, it talked about a persistent weak layer with about an 80 centimeter load on top of it. So if it went, it all went. And so combine those two, the actual right. um, terrain and the condition, it was a, it was a no-go. Oh, Dave, it must have been terrifying. It was it was wild. We all had a very different experience from, uh, you know, being in a washing machine to, uh, I mean, I was tumbling like a rag doll, head over head, and it's typically blunt trauma that uh, is going to kill you. So worrying about every time I came up, uh, you know, around, I blocked it uh, in case there were trees. Other folks were, were uh, didn't remember anything because they basically were knocked out pretty quick. So uh, quite, but, but all horrific. Right. Everybody experienced the power. Dave, do you think there are, do you see people making mistakes when they go out in the backcountry in the wintertime? Like, what, what do you think are the big problems that we have? Oh, I think we all make mistakes. Um, and and our, our experience is guided, but this, this holds as true or more true for unguided, where you have varying degrees of, of skill and knowledge. Um, we all make mistakes. The thing, thing of it is that we get away with it uh, 99 times out of 100, and it's that one right. time. And so how do you, how do you, you know, players play safe in, in a way that, takes those chances, you know, way beyond, um, you know, one in a hundred or one in 10,000, whatever the, whatever the, the odds are, you want to improve your odds by situational awareness is a huge thing. Uh, when we talk about group dynamics, we talk about communication style. We talk about how decisions are made. We talk about whether everybody has a voice. We talk about, and then you start thinking about yourself, whether you are listening to your inner voice, uh, your intuition, are you, are you using your knowledge? Are you taking responsibility? You don't check out because someone else is making decisions. Uh, that's probably the biggest lesson, one of the biggest lessons we all learned. So what advice do you have to people then if they are thinking? A lot of newbies, I would imagine, would be heading out this year as well. Good point. And uh, I would say start with the basics. Have all the equipment, all the, all the protective, you know, probe, transceiver, shovel. Take the AST1 course. Take the AST2 course. Get out there and apply it. Practice, practice, practice. If anything ever happens, you have to be able to respond in the moment. You can't freeze. You can't just sit around and think. You've got, you've got, you know, time is not your friend. You have to be able to just act in the right way uh, without hesitation. So get boned up. 
be really conversant, practice a lot, know your group. Don't go out with two large groups. Like, you know, the bigger the group, the bigger the dynamics, the bigger the potential hazard. What's the website, Dave, for people to get more information? Yeah, thank you. Um, Backcountrysafe.ca. All right. We will check that out. All one word. All one word. We'll check it out. Thanks so much for the advice this morning. Timmy, you're so welcome. That's Dave Crompton, avalanche survivor, and of course now giver of advice for when it comes to people who are heading into the backcountry. This winter, I think a lot of people, given the pandemic situation, will probably do that. But stay safe out there is the absolute first lesson. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, one of the big arguments for getting kids back in school was that, listen, it it was good for their mental health. It was good for them to have that because otherwise they were really suffering in this pandemic. We knew that it was going to have a negative impact on kids, but we're finally getting a better picture, actually, of what specifically that looks like. So joining us now to talk about this new report that is out this morning is Jennifer Charlesworth, BC's representative for children and youth, along with Dr. Charlotte Waddell, who's a director of the Children's Health Policy Center in the Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University. Thanks to both of you for being here this morning. Good morning, Simi. Thank you. Good morning. Now, Jennifer, let me start with you here. Tell me about this report. What exactly did you look into? Well, because of the kind of information that we get through our office, through advocacy and critical injury and death reports, we were starting to see some trends or some patterns that we were concerned about with respect to children's mental health during the pandemic. So we reached out to uh, Dr. Waddell and her team to help us understand what we might need to to learn about from past pandemics or past natural disasters so that we could be more anticipatory and begin to think about what are the public policy and investment uh, investments needed in order to address the significant impact on children and youth and their mental health. And Dr. Waddell, what past, you know, situations could you look at to measure something like this? Well, we were able to find studies uh, done, in, done in children looking at past pandemics, for example, the SARS pandemic, H1N1, two previous uh, viral pandemics that did result in uh, some things that we're seeing these days, such as disruptions, closures, and even quarantine in some cases. But we also looked at other kinds of natural disasters that can be highly disruptive, things like earthquakes and wildfires. Okay, so let's talk about what we found. Dr. Waddell, how are kids coping in this? What what we're projecting based on these past studies, because we don't yet have the data to, to really answer the question of how are kids doing right now in BC or Canada. We hope to get those data, but what we can project from from past experiences is that we can expect to see quite significant increases in certain mental health problems for kids and some might not be too surprising in a sense, anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress, and even behavioral challenges. And so um, the bottom line is that we need to prepare and be gearing up already to address these added challenges. And partly what makes this very acute is that pre-COVID, we already had a number of serious shortfalls in children's mental health services in BC. Um, So we estimate that um, pre-COVID, about 95,000 children at any given time would be experiencing mental health problems that are serious enough such that they need treatment for those problems. 
but we also estimate that less than half of those kids got any help for those mental health concerns. So something that really is remarkable because we would not have children with serious physical health concerns going untreated like that. So we have a high pre-pandemic baseline need, and now it's going to climb. So we really have to get on top of this. That's such a good point you make, though, that if it were physical injuries, there's no way we would let that many children go untreated. Uh, Jennifer, have you noticed this in the work that you do as BC's representative for children and youth? Is there more of a demand for more reports, more stories, more help? Absolutely. We saw it right out of the gate, and it's been persistent through this whole time. And what we're seeing is a particularly um, disproportionate impact on some children and youth, some of those children and youth that had mental health concerns or substance use concern pre-pandemic. It's become more acute. Children and youth that perhaps weren't dealing with that, but were dealing with uh, other adversities in their lives that were really struggling in school or there was economic insecurity in their family or housing instability. All of those children, what we're seeing is an increase in the kinds of mental health concerns that they are uh, being affected by now. And uh, the kinds of safeguards that were typically in place through school or through recreational connections or through familial connections, cultural connections, Mm -hmm. many of those were stopped. So it's really heightened the risks for so many children and particularly for some groups of children. So Dr. Waddell, what can we do? Well, there's a lot that we know about how to treat um, children's mental health problems. In fact, if you look at, say, certainly the disorders that I just mentioned, anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress, behavior challenges, we have very strong evidence on effectively treating all of those problems. So things like cognitive behavioral therapy, that's something that works really well for anxiety and depression and post-traumatic stress. Um, That's also an intervention that can be delivered virtually. So if kids can't go into a clinic or go and see a practitioner, that can be done online, um, virtual services or even self-help services. The other thing that's really crucial is that all of the problems that I've mentioned are preventable as well. So Mm -hmm. we may have kids that are struggling but maybe coping um, for now, there are things that we can put in place to prevent those kids from developing a problem. And so really, really lowering that burden of distress and really um, jumping in much earlier. Similar approaches work for prevention. So again, things like cognitive behavioral therapy, very effective as a prevention technique. Right. Um, So lots we can do. Okay. And so Jennifer, I assume you'll be taking this to the provincial government. Have they said anything? Have you given this, this report? Well, they're in the interregnum period still, so as soon as they are back in session and as soon as we have a new select standing committee on children and youth, we look forward to sharing the information with them. I certainly hope so. All right, well, keep us posted on how that goes. Thanks to both of you for joining us this morning. Thank you, Simi. Thank you so much. That's Jennifer Charlesworth, BC's representative for children and youth, and Dr. Charlotte Waddell, who's the director of Children's Health Policy, the Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University. Yeah, I think it's time we got this provincial government show on the road, right? Let's get this cabinet moving. Let's get people back to their jobs or in their new jobs so they can respond to things like this where kids need help.